I grew up in Dorval, Quebec, and people in Noah, that's where the Montreal airport is, and I sure knew it. It was the days before the whispered jets, and we lived right under the landing strip in this rickety old house, and the windows would shake. But I loved being a teenager, and one of the favorite things we did, especially when it got cold, was go to the Dorval Shopping Center. I remember walking in the shopping center each and every day, and the right-hand side was this little record store. It's called Steve's. Put down your dollar, dollar five, get your singles. Music meant a lot. But what really excited me in that store is on the top shelf, about six feet off the ground, they had electric guitars and amplifiers and some drum sets. And there's one guitar that caught my eye, a purple teardrop. And I wanted it. I wanted it bad. In those days, it was like, I think it was $49. Fortune back then. As a kid, I, I hustled to make money, but I had an equal propensity to spend it. Nothing stayed with me. But I saved that year. I remember the day I bought that purple teardrop, brought it home with this amplifier, guitar strap, and a bag full of cool guitar chips. Well, what I had in hustle, I lacked in musicality. My sister played piano, my mother was a beautiful pianist, but I just never figured it out. But even so, we were kids with ambition, so we formed this trio. Fred Gray, Alan Clark on the drums, and myself playing the Purple Teardrop. We spent more time trying to come up with a name for the band than we ever did practicing, ended up with Electrical Illusion. We got to play one gig at the Boy Scout Hall that we were all part of on the stage and I had somebody flick the lights on and off because we were Electrical Illusion. Sadly, that audience had to painfully listen to our two songs, House of the Rising Sun and Wipe Up. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. So why does this all matter? What am I talking about today? Well, I'm going to talk about why music matters, why ambition matters, and collaboration matters, and show matters. And I'm going to also talk about that there's a lot of kids out there that play guitar and drums and dream, but there's very few that get to the top of the world. My guest today, Gil Moore, is the drummer of the Canadian band Triumph. Rick Emmett, Mike Levine, and Gilmore formed the band in 1975. How they were described as researching it was a blend of heavy riff rockers with progressive odysseys peppered with thoughtful and inspiring lyrics, virtuoso guitar playing. But their anthems laid on the line, magic power, fight the good fight, they broke not only in Canada, they broke in the United States and amassed a legion of fiercely passionate fans, headlining major stadiums. They could write their own ticket and they quit. Today we're going to learn about that band and their breakup, but more importantly, we're going to learn about Gilmore and why I'm so impressed with this individual, his passion, his pursuit, his desire to find new venues. As he says, there's 10 doors in front of me and I want to go and bang through each one of them. Gilmore, welcome to Chat of the Matters. Hey, it's great to be here, Tony. 
when I told him I was interviewing you and I went to people like Randy Lennox from Universal Music, he said, man, he's a, he's a dear friend of mine, but he's also an incredible guy. I hear that time and time again. And, you know, incredible is overused like so many other things in our vernacular, but the way they talk about you is smart, genuine, entrepreneurial, authentic. And I often trace that back to upbringing. Tony, I always tell young people that don't have a great upbringing that none of us get to choose our parents. It's something that happens to us. If you're fortunate in life and you have great parents, and I was one of those fortunate uh, kids, you're lucky, you know, and uh, you don't realize it. You think everyone has it. You think you're entitled to it. It's like the air we breathe and water that we drink, but it's not, you know, a lot of kids have, uh, have a rough time. And uh, a lot of families have a rough time. I was just very, very fortunate to be born to Herb and Martha Moore. So describe something. When you talk about faith, because a lot of times it's really, as you said, you didn't know it then, but know it now. But what kind of lessons did they, did they give you that you put in that knapsack that time and time again through your life you've drawn upon? I, I guess there was, you know, when you look back into that, you know, echo chamber of your youth, you know, the thing I hear over and over again from my father particularly, was do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That was kind of his philosophy. And, and the way uh, he exhibited that, uh, particularly as a father, was he was kind of hands-off. He would assist me if I wanted assistance. He'd let me freewheel if I wanted to freewheel. And I, I didn't realize it then, of course, but now when I look back, he was letting me find my way in life and realizing that to try to backseat drive or oversteer was not likely to let me find out what I needed to know. If, if, if you do so, if something hits you in the head and it hurts, it hurts. And that's why you don't do it again. The simple, simple stuff like that, you know, it didn't push me too hard. He just, he just, he was a set of guardrails that was there and he was a, an incredible resource, but, uh, he really emphasized the it's your life. I'm going to let you live your life. And I understand you were also quite athletic, played a lot of baseball, a lot of hockey. How did you fit music into that? When did music come into your life that you said, that's something else I want to invest time in? You know, like your earlier story, you know, sports was something that all the kids in my neighborhood uh, could do. It was, it was the thing when I was growing up. So we, were, we played f football, we played uh, baseball, organized baseball, organized hockey, and so on. And, you know, music was something, back to the $49 guitar that seemed like a million bucks. It was exactly the same thing. No one had instruments. Music was sort of a fanciful, it was just something you couldn't really imagine beyond getting, you know, piano lessons, which, of course, none of us wanted, uh, but all of us got. <laughs> so true. <laughs> From one of the other mothers in the yeah, neighborhood yeah. who would come around and it was your Thursday afternoon piano lesson, that sort of thing. The best way to inspire a, a kid that just wants to get outside is to tell them to do scales for an hour. Yeah, but music, uh, I, I didn't catch on with piano, even though my mother was a very good pianist. And again, when I, when I reflect back, all the music that I listened to coming from that Heinzmann piano uh, in my parents' living room, you know, it really did have an effect on me. And I can still hear my mom's piano playing in my mind at times. It was just comforting, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I drifted into drums uh, by accident. I was just up in Port Elgin at my friend's cottage. Um, I had a neighborhood friend who also had a, had a cottage, you know, at the Cedar Crest Casino, which is long since gone and in Port Elgin Beach. Uh, there was a band there called the Comets that were playing, and Brad and I, my friend, we were we were too young, but uh, I don't know. Somehow we got 
we got in. It was, there was no alcohol, so 12 or 13 years old. And uh, we were just kind of amazed, you know, seeing electric guitars. And for me, of course, the drums, as soon as I heard them, just the rat-a-tat-tat and the smash of the cymbals, I was like, oh my God goodness this is the greatest thing i've ever seen or heard did you i think you even had rhythm i mean i i'm fascinated by drummers because you are the bedrock of a band did it come naturally to you not at all my equivalent to the band that you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier you know the band that never played anywhere and we spent most of our time trying to figure out what the name of our band should be and we practiced in, in in my parents house we we had these um sessions where we would be trying to figure things out and i remember the guitarist fred saying to me, Gil, I got it. I got it. I got it. I go, great, Fred, what is it that you've got? And he says, I've got the New Orleans beat. And I went, the New Orleans beat? What's the New Orleans beat? He gets his foot and and slaps his knee and he starts doing this rhythm. And and before you know it, the bass player, Jim and myself, we're all standing around and we're all imitating Fred and we're all going, we got it. We got the New Orleans beat. (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is we thought that was there was no books to study there were no lessons to take at the time you just figured it out by by listening and and collaborating with uh with your friends when did you get your own drum kit i got a snare drum initially i got a set of japanese drums they were terrible they cost about 275 dollars at the time but they were my drums this big yes we had a lot of confidence in what we were doing we believed in it we believed in each other today i'm chatting with gil morris the drummer of triumph you went from as you described uh not being able to uh, afford a bag of popcorn to driving around and uh limousines and riding around in private jets pretty quickly. Tell me how Triumph formed. Mike Levine and I met in sort of the local music scene. He was impressive. You know, he he was his leader of a band that we were, you know, relatively successful and we became friends. At a certain point, he was working at a record company and he was, uh, he'd moved on a little bit from playing all the time. I had a band and I'd moved on into the audio field. You know, sound equipment was really a, a second passion of mine besides performing. One day, just just talking about, you know, where we'd been with our bands, which were mostly semi-failures as much as semi-successes, like all bands, like mo- most bands fail. We sort of looked at what we'd picked up along the way, him working with Hopi Records and me seeing the production side of performances we thought we'd take one more kick at the can. So we searched out guitar players. We had a, an idea for a trio, power trio, I guess you'd say. So there was a specific fit as far as the guitar player was concerned. We got a tip to uh, look at a guy named Rick Emmett. We you know, fell in love with what he was doing on stage and we went, he's our man. We were able to persuade Rick to jam with us, and then one thing led to another, and uh, the genesis of Triumph was formed that way. Now, I've watched a lot of uh, rock documentaries. I, I'm fascinated by the stories, the story arcs. But one of the things that I, I really study is this, this sense of talent and culture, the chemistry of people coming together. How do you know that the chemistry is right? When do you know it's right? Or do you just hope it's right? You just hope. We did get a very good sense when we started jamming. 
perhaps for Mike and I, we realized, you know what, we've actually come quite a ways down the, the musical path. Maybe we weren't giving ourselves enough credit for how, how far we'd come because we hadn't had a band that had taken off. But when we started working with Rick, uh, there was kind of an explosion of ideas that were just like water flowing. It was really, really quick. It was the moment that we performed on stage together in front of a live audience. That's when we recognized instantly um, it was at a high school in Sim- Simcoe District High School in September of 1975, and it was our very first show. We were used to audience reactions, as all musicians are, indifference, boredom, feigned interest, or a little bit of interest, but not that sort of surge of, oh my God, of jaw-dropping, eyes-popping, pressing the stage. Never experienced anything like that. When it happens, which it, it did instantly, within two, three songs, we kind of looked at each other and like, what the, what's going on here? This, <laughs> this is working. This is like nothing I've ever experienced before. He talked a little bit about having more experience and more maturity, but I was just watching a ZZ Top and they talked about having to find that sound. What was our band going to sound like? Is that something that happens or did you just sort of evolve into this trio? I think, I think you get lucky. I, I think it, it's some, somehow a blend of uh, background. So Mike came from, you know, mostly an R&B background. I came from a blues and then R&B background. So sort of a blend on the blues side. Whereas Rick, he came from more of a progressive and classical uh, background. When you mesh those different, you know, sounds and styles together, I guess it's like, you know, a chef mixing ingredients and that's what creates a taste and music's no different. It's that blend that uh, gives you hopefully a signature sound and not something that just sounds like everything else you've heard. And another interview I saw of yours, you talked about going to a Blue Oyster Cult show seeing lasers for the first time. And he said, I, I, we couldn't even, we could barely afford the ticket to the show. And I know I'm coming back saying our band needs lasers, but a big part of your success was you were a show. It was great music, powerful singing, powerful songs, but you, you brought a lot of that theater to it. Yeah. I, I think in some respects, you know, when Mike and I were imagining what the band should be, we thought, okay, it's got, it's got to be somehow, electric. It's got to be somehow more exciting than anything that's ever happened. We're trying to imagine that. We always, for some reason or other, fire was always part of it. Not in the sense of pyro, but more in the sense of just, you know, flames and whatever, you know, our first poster, uh, because we didn't have a guitar player. We had the idea. We had no guitar player. So we had, a, we had to make a poster to get the agents excited. So we, we had a devil's head with horns coming out of a flaming lake. I mean, it was it was so spinal tapish. It's really hilarious to look back on it, but we didn't know what that was. The shows that we had seen, you know, from bands that went before us, and you mentioned Blue Oyster Cult for one, you know, saw them at Ridge Stadium. That was the first time I ever saw uh, lasers. I think they were probably one of the very, very first uh, bands that ever carried lasers. And it was an aha moment. Kiss were... Uh, a bit earlier, uh, one of the very first bands with Pyro. But when you go back to sort of, you know, the, look at Jimi Hendrix and and some of the great uh, showmanship uh, moves, I'll say, that Jimi Hendrix had, he was great without the showmanship. I mean, his voice and his guitar, 
uh, say no more. But uh, when well, you letting, add letting in your the, guitar on the fu- letting your guitar <laughs> on fire is a bit of a showmanship, but yeah, yeah. When you add in the fact that he lit his guitar on fire <laughs> and all that, it, it it just made it kind of wow, un- unforgettable moments. And so, yeah, we were inspired by Hendrix. We were inspired by Zeppelin. We were uh, inspired by you know the Who. Great shows, the Rolling Stones. Great, great uh, shows. And we just decided we wanted to have our own, our own signature, our own, our own brand, our own trademark that would be, you know, this is what Triumph is. So all the time I invested in learning about technology beforehand with my little fledgling kid company of sound and lighting, all that knowledge, I thought, I'm bringing it all into Triumph. And this is where we're going to get a chance to, to use that. We just needed money. We just, <laughs> we just needed a budget to buy all the stuff uh, to make it happen. You give a lot of credit to Rush uh, having some some success and having people realize that north of the 49th there was good musicians. But you went down there and you took it by storm. And you talk about taking a pocket of the United States where they loved you, and then just kind of it went from there. That gave us some confidence because it seemed like an impossible task, Tony, an impossible task. And to this day, I still see, uh, even though there's been more Canadian bands. Uh, that are accepted in America, it's still a very, very tough nut to crack. And and there's still many, again, that end up, they hit that 49th parallel and it just seems like it's made of barbed wire. What advice can you give to, to give people the confidence to say, believe in what you think is right and go after it? Well, you know, I was, I was lucky that uh, the three of us got along so well, so we could bounce things off each other, you know, every day during travel. We always knew we were vulnerable. We always knew that we could fail. We always knew that you make one wrong turn and you don't know where it's going to lead like anything else, like anything else in life, really. It's just that we were able to keep our confidence level higher than whatever that level of fear is. You're either going to be driven by fear or you're going to be driven by your confidence. We kept being driven by confidence but it's always uh, it's always a, a ratio, you know. I, I I never once ever thought, you know, that we were entitled. I never once thought that it was anything was a certainty. And yet at the same time, I didn't feel like we were going to suddenly collapse either. You know, I felt oh, if we keep our noses to the grindstone, we keep working on our music, you know, we relate well to our fans. We'll just keep building this house. Incredible, incredible piece of advice that that balance between fear and confidence. Keep confidence ahead of fear, but don't get overconfident to the point where you become entitled or arrogant. Powerful, powerful lesson in life. When we come back, triumph breaks up, and what happens next is the beginning of an incredible new adventure for one of Canada's most gifted entrepreneurs, Gil Moore. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure, and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. Get on your feet to welcome Canada.
Canada's rock and roll machine. Triumph. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. My special guest is Gil Moore, the drummer of Triumph. As I said before the break, one of Canada's most gifted entrepreneurs. Before we get into your second career, tell us why Triumph, at the highest point in their game, breaks up. It's a tough one, Tony, but uh, it's really a simple story, a combination of factors. So Rick was feeling that he wanted to do some things on his own, like explore some new musical avenues. Like he had so many other interests uh, in, in, in guitar uh, and in writing as well. How did you take that? Three of you incredibly tight and one decides that they want to maybe go off and do something different. How, how do you feel as a, as a band and as a culture when that happens? It, because there were a combination of things happening at once, it didn't impact as much as the combination of factors at the time. We'd been performing for, uh, you know, tour, video, tour, video, album, 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 over and over and over again. It's an exhausting schedule. It really is when you're doing all one-nighters. You're never, you know, in any place for more than one night. In my case, you know, it was right when my father passed away. So for me, that was just a complete hole in my life for about a year and a half. And it, it blurred my vision as far as everything else that was going on around me. So it's as the band was kind of fracturing, I almost wasn't paying attention to it. I was kind of numb to the band. The, the band was not a priority for me. He was like your best, you describe him as your best friend. I mean, he was, he was so much more than a father, right? My dad was my best friend. My dad was uh, also uh, involved with the band all the way along. Like he, uh, he managed our finances uh, he was great friends with Rick. He was great friends with Mike. Um, you know, he was he was like a part of an extended Triumph family. He was part of the the core because he was retired. So he just he just loved to do it. I must have made you feel proud that you know when your your dad good friends with your friends. I mean, he, he my dad loved Triumph. My mom did too. Uh, I mean, when when my dad passed on, he was buried in, in a Triumph tour jacket if you can believe wow. it, because that was his favorite jacket to wear when he would walk around the neighborhood. Um, with my mom, you know, when the weather was, when the weather was, uh, warm in the summer and the fall and so on, he'd wear this triumph tour jacket, <laughs> you know, neighbors would talk to him and, oh, I saw a story in the, you know, the Toronto newspaper about triumph, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> He's kind of the Walter Gretzky or Walter of uh, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. That's fantastic. I mean, when we would play Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, you know, we would all send, we would send limos for our parents. They would all come down and, you know, my mom and dad would sit in the stands. My dad would wear a, a you know, a suit and tie. <laughs> uh, they were great memories, really. Artistically, the other thing that, that had happened was we had never worked with a producer who had had a negative impact. We worked with uh, one producer uh, whose name I won't mention. Uh, he, he was a divisive force and he seemed to figure out a way to uh, alienate the three of us from each other in the studio environment. And that was very discomforting because the studio is the, is the most fun place to be, I think, for, for musicians, because there's no pressure of the crowd. If you do something wrong, you can start over again. New sounds and new songs are fun because they're all fresh. So to have a negative experience in the studio was really disheartening. We were also 
talked into recording in Los Angeles at that time instead of here at Metalworks. The warm weather and everything. We're, we're Canadians. That's not how we, we didn't grow up with, you know, 85 degrees and sunshine every day. And it's just kind of, we we're out of our element. I don't know how else to put it. The band breaks up. I would say that a lot of people would say, you know, I, I've reached the peak of my life, but it turns out you weren't even on a hill yet. What you've done over the last 30 years, I guess, has been incredible. So tell us a bit about Metalworks. You know, the origins of Metalworks sort of trace back to my, what I'll call my kid company, um, which I called Gilmore Audio, (laughs) (laughs) which is prior to Triumph, which started in my parents' basement. You know, so by the time Triumph started, it was a little more than a kid company at that point. And I had some, I had some good gear. The genesis or the seed was right there because what we ended up doing is saying, well, we need a place to rehearse and maybe we can record at the same time. We need, we weren't thinking anything grandiose. It was more, you know, a small tape recorder or something like that. But it just, it just exploded. Once we got a commercial warehouse and we started to rehearse, we just got so fired up. We went, oh my golly, we got to build a recording studio, you know? And of course it starts in your mind's eye being something very small. We're going to put egg cartons on the wall. We're going to put a carpet on the ground. And, and then the next thing you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we've got this, you know, fantastic original studio, which is Studio One, still standing here today. Give the uh, audience just a, a sense of who is recorded in Studio One. Over the years, it's been, uh, you know, everything from uh, Anne Murray and Tom Cochran, you know, to Drake and The Weeknd um, and everything in between. Guns N' Roses have been here. Prince spent a lot of time here. Um, the guys in Rush have been here. Is there a fraternity with musicians, like almost like Masons, that you just have such great respect for each other because you've been on the road, you've made it happen? It's funny that you should say that, Tony. I was I was just thinking about this the other day, about how musicians, they really do feel at home, I think. All musicians, when they're in a studio, it's a great environment. It's It's kind of where they get to be private. You know, even when, you know, when I've met, you know, guys that were heroes to me, like when Ian Gillen was here from Deep Purple and he re-recorded Smoke on the Water in Studio One of of all places. And I said, Ian, like, I love Deep Purple and, you know, what you guys have done and blah, blah, blah. And he's just, you know, dressed like you are right now, you know, laying back and enjoying the vibe of what's going on, listening to the guitars get recorded and so on. So they're in a comfort zone. Another one of your admirers, uh, Mary DePauly from RBC, I've known Mary for years. I always say you can take her out of Hamilton, but you can't take the Hamilton out of Mary DePauly. She's uh, She just talks about this place being like Disney, but she said, make sure you ask Gil about what he's doing with the school and with kids. So tell us a little bit about that. Mary is is absolutely wonderful, Tony. I, I agree. And, you know, we, we met at uh, Canada's Walk of Fame when Triumph was being inducted. I'm originally from Hamilton too, by the way. Wow. Okay, now I get it. <laughs> so maybe there's something, <laughs> the there's something to that. I really admire what what uh, RBC's doing on the on the music scene. Um, you know, this this pandemic has been particularly hard on young people. I think as much as the focus has been on all the all the folks that have lost their lives, and it should be, and on on the first responders, as it should be. In addition to that, you know, there's a I think a quiet suffering that's gone on with young people. RBC, I think, has realized, you know, music is uh, somewhat of a magic elixir, always has been, always will be. You know, music is something that brings people together. It's something that resonates with all different cultures. We have enough problems to go around right now in society generally pulling people apart. And music is is one of the, 
I think, magic bullet solutions. What we're trying to do with uh, is is support RBCX's efforts in extending music education uh, to young people, free education. We've been very lucky with our school here at Metalworks, uh, which is post-secondary, so it's a, it's a registered career college and so on, in seeing uh, successful uh, engineers uh, come from, from our school. For example, Drake just won the um, Billboard uh, Artist of the Decade Award, and there was one of our graduates, Noel Cadestri, on stage with him. These are fantastic outcomes uh, that we've seen with students. But they're all post-secondary, and yet the interest starts much, much earlier. And those kids are really deprived of an avenue to get quality education. They can do random Google searches and so on, but uh, what we're trying to do is create a professional uh, university caliber, I'll say, education platform to let young people get into the music space earlier. I never had that opportunity. It was the school of hard knocks. And that was the same for my entire generation. Doesn't need to be that way now with technology, you know, with the, you know, the cloud servers that we have and the, and the software capabilities we have and the processing power that pe- we all have on, on our mobile devices. You know, this should be the age where we're able to pass forward some of this knowledge in a more organized and a, and a faster solution. So that's really what we're we're trying to uh, work on with RBCX. Is it fate or random chance? How can I decide? Are we victims of circumstance when destinies collide? I'm talking to Gilmore. The, you might know him as the uh, drummer from Triumph, the super band, but what he's done over the last 30 years, the most award-winning longest running studio, uh, the people like Drake and The Weeknd and so many other people have been through this place, Metalworks. So tell me a bit about your learning. You know, you strike me as someone that, you know, from day one, your dad gave you some things in the knapsack you draw upon, you went into Triumph and you took from your original band. What should we be doing as a society to improve education? So it's not just music we're talking about, but the kids that go through an environment come out with the kind of shining eyes and beating heart you have? I think, you know, micro-credentials are, are an important key. I, th- I think online delivery, uh, and by that I don't mean Zoom meetings, I mean professional industrial strength learning management systems are a key. The power of the mobile device is a key. And I think there needs to be a willingness on the part of all educators and all people in the academic uh, ecosystem to realize that the structures have to change. We're able now to connect the whole world. If one potentially good outcome from the pandemic has been that it's, it's emphasized that very point. So to the education community, uh, even if it was brought about by a pandemic, they've realized that, you know what? We have to keep learning. You know, we have to figure out a way to keep connected. We've got technology now to transcend language barriers that we didn't have before. Uh, we, we have technologies like, like uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and so on to potentially be able to teach technical skills outside of a workshop, a traditional workshop environment. These are huge uh, initiatives that are taking place. And there's grassroots organizations that are, are looking at education differently. And I think if education stays 
you know, well, this is the way it was. This is how we want it. Everything needs to be the way it was 10 years ago. And that, that sort of rear view mirror perspective, we're really doomed with education. We're doomed. Do you think education is capable of changing? You know, we've moved into a more on-demand society. I think with education, if you just look at the fact that, you know, young people in general don't learn well at eight o'clock in the morning. So if that's not optimal for learning time, well, why, why are we doing it? You know, why don't we look at, you know, flex schedules? People that are not financially capable of being in school Monday to Friday daytime hours because they need to hold down a job, albeit at McDonald's or a car wash, wherever. Well, why would we not allow them to learn on an offset schedule? We are on the cusp of the new horizon for education, where education can be on demand uh, in a less structured program environment, let's say, uh, is good. You can study what you want, when you want. I think that's the general direction. I want to take it back to Triumph. This documentary craves must be pretty exciting to look back in your life when it's put out on film. What was it like the first time you saw it? Well, it's it's like being an observer looking in. It's a real eye-opener because even though we participated in the interviews and, of course, all the footage is footage of our career, it, it, it's still an interesting lens seeing it through the, you know, the, the eye of the director and the writer uh, and how they crafted the film. You see there's a story there that goes beyond what kind of we thought was happening because it encompasses the audience. It encompasses uh, an era and trends uh, in culture. Any motivation? Because I know you guys have played a bit together and any thought you're going to come back and record more music or there's just too many doors in front of Gil to consider? It really comes down to the will. We, there's nothing stopping us from doing that, Tony. And we've, Mike and Rick and I have talked about it. You know, if there, if there seemed to be a time that was right and there was the inclination to do so, you know, we're great friends. We see each other regularly. We could do that. Right now, we all have a pretty full dance card. In, interestingly, one of the technology companies that we have here at Metalworks has a futuristic mixed reality platform, and we're hoping to launch Triumph on that, on that platform, which would create a, um, a tour. It, and and uh, there would be no Mike, Rick, and Gil uh, per se. However, there would be um, something very exciting. Tony Chapman, my special guest is Gil Moore, and I always end by talking about my three takeaways. And the first one I'm taking away, Gil, is your comment on confidence and fear and how they belong together. I always have more confidence and fear, but both of them work together to keep you focused and moving forward and not feeling entitled or not feeling a victim. Second one is a, a key word that you didn't mention, but has resonated through this entire thing is trust. The trust your dad had in you, the trust you had in each other in the band when you're, you know, traveled together and made decisions, the trust you have in your own instincts in terms of what's important and what matters. And the final thing is your passion for technology. But what, what I really like about it is you see it as, a, as an enabler. It's almost a Yoda. It's to help kids get better educated. It's to help that person that might have to work all day have an opportunity to learn at night open up minds to equalize to create a playing field where we'll, all can prosper bill moore it's been an absolute delight mary DePauli was the one that suggested i talk to you and for that i owe her yet another hug uh thanks for joining me on chat of the matters thanks a million tony it was uh very enjoyable thank you 
Joining me now is Jeff Lindsay. He's the senior manager of RBCX's music platform. Jeff last joined me when I interviewed Harry Connick Jr. Jeff, welcome back to Chat of the Matters. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. So Gil and I were chatting and he talked a lot about this, that Metalworks in terms of a school, what he's doing for aspiring artists, but he referenced RBC and the role you're playing as well. So how do you two work together? At RBC, we are so appreciative that Gil has welcomed us into the Metalworks family. The, the relationship really between RBC and Metalworks, it truly transcends the transactional in my mind. It's this mutually beneficial partnership whereby both organizations have a shared commitment to the arts, a desire to uplift the creative community, and to develop emerging Canadian talent. You know, we use synergy a lot in business, but true synergy is when one plus one equals three. So talk to me about the synergy between RBCX Music and Metalworks. Tell me a story of an individual artist who has benefited from both. Back in May of 2020, we at RBC launched a program called First Up with RBCX Music that aims to support and promote emerging Canadian artists. And as soon as Gil saw the announcement, he proactively reached out to see how he could support and to offer the complete gamut of Metalworks resources, all in the spirit of being a great partner with a shared interest of supporting the next generation of Canadian music talent. And as a result, we ended up filming a commercial spot at Metalworks Studios that was created to shine a light on these incredible artists within our program. And what really brings the story full circle is that the hero of the spot was an artist named Devante Woe, and he was also a graduate of Metalworks Institute only a few years prior. So what's next for RBCX Music and your partnership with uh, Metalworks? Gil always has a number of projects in the work and, and we are so interested to see what he's going to come up with next. I don't want to uh, divulge too much on, on my side. I'll let, you know, kind of Gil tell that story. But certainly we are excited to be attached to the rocket ships that come out of Metalworks and, and certainly Gilmore's world. Jeff Lindsay, looking forward to having you on again. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.